Mike, thanks for doing this, bro. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you. It's great Con to be here. Appreciate Congra it. Congratulations on the new book, man. Have you seen anyone reading in public yet? Um, no, I have not. Um, I don't know if I will or not. I, I kind of, I haven't traveled yet. I'm thinking my next trip to the airport might be one of those surreal moments when you kind of see yourself shrunken down to a commodity form. You're like, I really made it. You know, I'm in a shop now. You can, you can buy me in a shop. Let but me yeah, ask no. you. Yeah. If you see someone reading it, do you approach them? Um, no. What? Really? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> so I just saw this was your third book. What are your other, your other two books are on dating and relationships? Yeah, I wrote a, a kind of a, a strange little memoir about like sex and dating and, and my personal life 10 years ago, kind of the peak of, um, you know, professionalized blogging. <laughs> um, and then I had an essay in a larger anthology called City by City. It was sort of a series of essays about poverty in America and sort of wealth inequality and how that was sort of baked into the structure of a lot of cities you know, outside the New York, LA kind of, kind of, um, idea of, of America's like Cincinnati. I wrote about Fresno, which oh, is wow. in central California where I grew up. Um, yeah, there's a lot of great essays in the book, but you know, I just had an essay. It was like 10 or 15 pages worth. So not the whole book. Before we talk about your book, I want to talk about traveling. It's my biggest yes. passion. I'm trying to visit yeah. every country in the world. And I saw you lived in Madagascar. So I'm yeah. starting the, you know, my African traveling in November, hopefully Madagascar mm -hmm. next year. How'd you get there? What'd you like about it? And tell me about that. Um, I got there in Peace Corps. I was a Peace Corps volunteer there from 2003 to 2005. Um, it was actually my second. I did um, a year as a Peace Corps volunteer in China during oh, wow. the, the original SARS outbreak. And they evacuated us after about 10 months there. Um and then I got reassigned. I didn't feel like I'd really done, you know, what I had wanted to as a volunteer and, and kind of being helpful to other people. So I reapplied and started a whole new um, kind of tour, I guess, um, in Madagascar. Uh, that was incredible. I mean, it's still probably the best thing I think I've ever done with my life. Um, not in terms of like helping other people, but in terms of helping myself to kind of better understand the world and sort of get outside the the suburban American kind of like void a little bit and kind of appreciate um, what, you know, what's good about life in America and what we think is good that is kind of, you know, alienating at the end of the day. And, you know, it, it broke me down as a person as well. I think a lot of Americans carry um, a lot of, a lot of sort of, hidden um i don't i don't want to say crutches but like mm -hmm. you know we're a lot of us are kind of alienated from our, our sense of true self in america because we we're expected to be independent we're expected to be sort of like um you know self self-sufficient and you know if if we suffer in any way if we come up short we don't have enough then you know we kind of internalize that as our fault and you know, there's just something about living in another country, in another culture that just breaks you down, especially one where, the, you know, speaking English isn't an option. Madagascar, no one spoke English. Hmm. Very few people spoke English when I was in China. You kind of just have to learn another language, another culture. 
And, you know, you all of your tricks about sort of passing socially, about, you know, constructing your own sort of identity, none of that works when you're taken out of your comfort zone. You kind of, you have to build yourself up again. And the only way to really do that, it makes you really appreciate that you can't do that without other people. Like the extent to which you really rely on the support of other people, the acceptance of other people, the patience, the willingness, both of, you know, like my friends, other Americans that were in Peace Corps at the time, people in Madagascar and my my little village that, you know, were patient with me, that tolerated me, that, you know, helped me learn and get up on my feet. You know, it was very humbling, um, but incredibly um, sort of, you know, life-changing experience in terms of, you know, how I've approached the rest of my life and helped me see more in the world than I think I would have if I hadn't done it. That's pretty wild, man. And now you're a California guy. When you move to the Big Apple, favorite mm. food here that California doesn't do as good as out uh, here? Um, I I don't think there's anything that that's here that California doesn't do as well. <laughs> um, yeah, especially now, like the, the internet kind of had this weird effect on everything where you can kind of get everything anywhere. You know, it was like I used to think, you know, it was really hard to get really good Chinese food after having lived in China. Okay. And, you know, one of my biggest indulgences here was for a long time was Xi'an famous foods, which, you know, those. Of course, the, hot... that's the greatest. NS2 is my jam. I love that place. Yeah, it was amazing. I would just, you know, once a month I'd go binge <laughs> there, have have the uh, lamb burger and the the noodles. And I got really into the the um, hot, sour tofu, the Chang'an tofu, which is really good, too. But like. You know, that's just a chain now, too. And you can mm -hmm. kind of see a little bit behind the the curtain. And like you could do that stuff in Chinatown and L.A. or San Francisco. Like this, everywhere has its little pockets, you know. Um, the one thing that did shock me when I, I moved here um, that I wasn't prepared for was like what a drinking city this is compared to like California. Like to, to still I remember being in awe of the fact that bars were open until 4 a.m. It was just like. <laughs> You know, I was just, you know, I was a pretty sort of like outgoing kind of nightlife kind of oriented person in California. But, you know, you just get used to the lights coming on at 1245. Even on a Saturday night, you go out and it's like, you know, a lot of times you wouldn't even be leaving the house till then, you know, it's in wild. New York. And then you go to a, like one of my first weeks here, we went, we went to, um, I went out with some friends to some place and the lights come on at like 415. You know, it wasn't even like trying to get the the lead on closing time but when they turn the lights on they start selling everyone brown bag beers to take it's out. great <laughs> yeah and it's like hey, do you want it to go one like it's like what do you mean <laughs> like it's and the sun's coming up and like you're drinking out of a brown bag it was like a a surreal kind of period i think that, you know maybe i'm just older now but like you know, it doesn't seem like that happens that much anymore but you know when i got here 2009 that was kind of a a, a peak period and sort of, you know, and, hipsterdom and hedonism. And... <laughs> where's, uh, where's your favorite New York City hangout? Um, well, I used to actually, um, my favorite place is, is kind of gone now. It was my friend Michael, who's passed away, uh, used to have a sort of a small like bookstore. He had converted an old apartment that he lived in into a bookstore, a used bookstore. He sold like rare first editions. And he would just, you know, he'd have people come over and just hang out 
till all hours of the night and just you know he had a, an open door policy like you know he didn't take out a lot of advertisements or whatever but he always said if you could find me you know he was he was famously you know always joking like he's in the phone book you know his name just look him up in the phone book that's, that's his sick. address like and he would let anyone in that like cared enough to just like go find him so i love that place he he passed away um a couple of years ago so that that doesn't happen so much anymore um there's another place i used to love going called um called grounded i used to work there a lot as when i was freelance writing when i first moved to new york that closed down too i think that was a covid casualty it was like a a tiny little um coffee shop in the west village and um there's a bar i love called enids in greenpoint that you know that was another right when i moved here i went there one night with some friends and at 2 a.m., the bartender announced it was happy hour. So it was two for ones at 2 a.m. It was like a Tuesday. It's like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what is this city? Um, but yeah, they, you know, like everything in New York, this just it's here for five years and then it gets like priced out, pushed and then, out. And then it's a wrap. Yeah, like Mars Bar, you know, oh, everything's wow. an institution till it's not. And now it's like a high rise or a you know, fried chicken franchise. Like, <laughs> All right, ready to roll? Talk about this book, man? Yeah, of course. Outstanding book, Cage Kings, how an unlikely group of moguls, champions, and hustlers transformed the UFC into a $10 billion, uh, $10 billion industry. And Mike, here's what I got to tell you. I'm the biggest yeah. sports fan in the world. I Literally, my first marriage ended in divorce because I'm obsessed with sports. Oh, my God. U- UFC, I like. I'm not totally obsessed with. There's maybe three or four appointment watching pay-per-views if it's on i'm gonna watch it but i was into your book from page one i couldn't put it down so me not being the hardest core ufc guy was addicted to this book that's how i knew like this book is five stars it's off the hook man so i want to congratulate you on it i appreciate that it's great to hear i was uh i worked on it for a long time and a lot of those weeks and months i was like this is the most boring thing in the world like why would anyone ever want to read this who would ever ever care about any of these little details or like so you know i'm I'm glad it's sort of resonating when it's you know something you can just read from start to finish instead of soak in for five years and kind of obsess about well i told you i was actually pissed i texted you when i finished i read it on my kindle Mm. and i was like 65 (laughs) percent done i'm like bro this book is like nonsense i couldn't put it down and yeah. all of a sudden, I turn the next page, you know, I swipe, and it's like, here are the credits. I'm like, huh? It was 35% of research. How much How much research went to this book, man? Um, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it was It was pretty overwhelming. I hit, I hit a lot of points where when I was kind of deepest into it, um, you know, a, a lot of the work on the book was just writing and then going back and reading weeks later months later and it just i kept reading what i had written over and over to kind of tighten and tighten and make sure it flowed and made sense and one thing kind of led to the other and at some point you know three or four years into it um i was rereading a section and i came across like this and i don't even remember what it was anymore It was like a statistic or like some revenue number about like how much how much pay-per-view sales they had one year or something or like a, an anecdote about a negotiation and kind of 
And I was like, oh, this is really good. I should make a note of this and put it in my book. Like I should like save it. And I was like, wait, this is my book. <laughs> it's just like, it was such an avalanche of information. It was sort of like, I would forget what I found out already because the notes, Ooh. the notes themselves were just, you know, they're kind of like a micro encyclopedia when you actually like see them all compressed and, you know, it's like half the half the size of the font of the normal book and it still kind of fills out like a hundred pages. And that's not even, you know, the original draft was 50,000 words longer. So that's about mm -hmm. a third longer than the final text. So there's a ton of stuff that I kind of had to sort through and keep track of and like find, you know, what was resonant about it or significant or meaningful. It was kind of, it's definitely a lot of being overwhelmed by, especially as a company, you know, I would like, that was the other thing I would kind of like joke about with my wife, and my agent, um, as I was like going through it and just trying to like wrap up a draft, it'd be like, you know, it, if you compare it to like writing a book about like a bank robbery or a specific crime or something like telling a history of a company you know, companies have hundreds of people. So it's like, who are the characters? How do you like mm. limit, like, obviously like Dana White is easy. The Fertitta brothers, like they're the presidents, the CEOs, you know, that's kind of, but like how far down the executive ranks do you sort of like cut it off? And, you know, how do you make that judgment about who's worthwhile introducing as a character and who's just a sort of throwaway and, you know, the other thing with like company histories, like if you go in a linear sequence from sort of this year, that year, that year, that year, you kind of repeat a lot of the same information over and over again. So you could kind of prove the same point about fighter pay being too low in 2007 as you could in 2010. So it's sort of like, where do you really like open up and make that a, a subject to kind of explore instead of just like a passing reference? How do you find the right place? Um, you know, cause it's, again, it's not like Tuesday, they snuck into the bank and cracked the safe and it, they went, they picked eight, but it wasn't eight. It was seven. Like, <laughs> you know, you have a bunch of easy details that are there for you. It just kind of naturally, you know, suggest the drama, but here it really had to kind of rely on my own kind of research and instincts to figure out what the story was. And that was really challenging. I'm glad you brought up bank robbery because I was about to ask you, <laughs> writing a nonfiction book, I always ask this to authors who write nonfiction, you're investing years of your life. Were yeah. you ever worried that someone else was writing another book about the UFC that could have like just snoop, uh, scooped up and went like a week before you? Like that would always freak me out. Like if I'm like, oh, I'm writing a book on the UFC and you don't know about it. Would that like, you invested years of your life. Weren't you thinking someone else was doing something parallel to you? Um. I, I would have been. I kind of like knew no one else was going to be. Okay. Um, so I was more stressed about how much stuff was continuing to happen in this sort of history timeline as I was writing. So like, you know, from the outset, we, we agreed, Simon and Schuster, my editor, it was going to be the story of how the company built up to the sale that was sort of the original concept how did the business get built and it kind of ends with the sale the biggest sale in sports history the biggest single transaction in sports history and um <clears throat> you know that's when we signed the contract and then so another five years passes covid conor mcgregor falls apart habib Nurmagomedov like <laughs> becomes champion like 
you know so much stuff just happening yeah and like you know the nate diaz sort of like conflict that was going to be a big part of the crescendo at the end but then his career kept going now he's off like fighting jake paul and whatever else so like it just sort of like and the covid thing in itself uh, that could have been a main sort of like chapter to like get really more in depth into like what was happening but um you know that just started unfolding at what was my original due day i was originally supposed to have the first draft done in like 2020 oh no shit wow yeah so it just you know it took another two years but it was sort of like i was more stressed about like is this still relevant to use the sale as the end point and you know when when we sold the book the mcgregor mayweather fight hadn't even happened yet that was sort of that had just been sort of built up um or it's just been announced, I think. And so it, in a lot of ways, it was a completely different world. So it was trying to manage all the changes that continue to happen with the sport. And um, the ESPN deal hadn't happened yet. So like that was a huge new wrinkle. I was trying to like absorb and figure out, is this like a real main story beat that has to change the whole structure of the book to incorporate this? And so, you know, I think you'll find the epilogue is really filled with a lot of stuff yeah. that's that's current. I kind of had to squirrel away a lot of that current stuff there. So, and that's, that's the one thing with the UFC is like, there's, you could write a 10,000 page encyclopedia about mixed martial arts. It's such a colorful history. No one person is going to be able to do a comprehensive version of it. And there's been some really great books before this. I really like Clyde Gentry's No Holds Barred. I think that's a really colorful and um, really well-documented history of the early period in the 90s, not just of the UFC, but a lot of the other promotions that were competing against the UFC back then and just how wild and, and wooly it got racing against regulators and trying to find territories where they could get away with putting on events and, you know, recruiting fighters and managing all the different conflicts they had. Um, You know, so like, there's just, there's so much great history there. And, you know, I think now that I'm done, I, you know, I hope people keep working on it. I know John Nash, who writes for Bloody Elbow, is working, co-writing a book um, on the UFC's finances and kind of the business of mixed martial arts, which I think is going to be hugely valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Josh Gross wrote, uh, you know, a book about the Ali Anoki um, fight a few years ago. I guess it's like seven or eight years ago now, but, you know, I mean, there's always going to be books. So, you know, I think that's something to look forward to. It probably would have been a little stressful if I was racing against someone <laughs> else, but do you check reviews? Um, yeah, I mean, I read them. I think you have a responsibility to keep track of what, um, how people are responding to your work, but uh, I don't really care. Either. <laughs> like, I, you know, I, that may be, you know, a byproduct of just having been an internet writer for so long, kind of coming professionally kind of coming of age writing high volume um in a lot of other you know i was a beat writer at a website called ign for a long time where i covered mm-hmm. video games and just got thrashed daily by readers and just um ah. 
you know, I used to write for a website called Nerve too. It's like sex focus. That was kind of the origin of my first book. Um, you know, and I'd write like really personal, vulnerable stuff and people just, you know, shit all over you. So like I I developed pretty thick skin, but um I think with this book specifically, I've been alone with it for so long that like I have a pretty good sense of what it is. And I think it, I'm interested to see what other people, how, how they react to it, but someone else's reaction to it is not going to change my assessment of it. And I don't really care if people like it or don't. It's <laughs> if it's gratifying if people like it, like I'm, I'm happy and I want my editors to be happy and I want it to yeah. be a success and, and all that other stuff. But, you know, like my, my only interest is in reviews is whether or not the book inspires someone to mm. write, write something beautiful on their own within a review, like, to like do something beautiful in criticism and that can be like taking a negative view of the book or a pot like I, you know some of the most beautiful reviews are negative you know they're just elegant graceful just <laughs> tear downs and like if someone wanted to do that to the book but they did it in a way that was genuinely beautiful i think that would be you know gratifying to you know something that just produces more beauty in the world more light more insight you know, more creative energy. I think that's all for the best. So that's really my only, my only interest in reviews. Early on in the book, you said you were a fan of MMA and the UFC from the jump. What was it about mixed martial arts and combat fighting that just you fell in love with? You said you became addicted to it. Yeah. Um, at various points too. It's a weird, it's, you know, I think kind of like you were saying, it, it's kind of an addiction you fall in and out of. You kind of forget that it's there and then you get obsessed with it again at different points and different uh, times for different reasons. Um, I think, you know, I grew up in the eighties and that was a period when boxing was very accessible. Mm -hmm. You could just turn on the TV and ABC on the weekend. You could watch free fights, You like replays a lot of time. They weren't necessarily live, but you know, I grew up watching Marvin Hankler and, and ah. Sugar Ray Leonard. Like I was obsessed with Sugar Ray Leonard and Julio Cesar Chavez and um you know Mike Tyson kind of barnstorming through the heavyweight division. Um so I think I had a very adolescent fixation on on it, it was less the fights themselves because I wasn't old enough to really understand what was happening okay. technically, but it was the personality. I mean, it was really, you know, strong characters. And that was really exciting as a young kid. And then, um, you know, I was into pro wrestling. And oh, me too. Karate. I loved it, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it all just sort of like dovetailed very neatly. And I, I think I was very susceptible to the kind of taboo, marketing that the ufc had when it first came out i still i remember the segment on the local news in fresno after the first one it was the first time i heard of it in 93 um i didn't get to see it until like 1996 because i didn't have access to pay-per-view and uh -huh. none of my i didn't have cable growing up um so i had to find it through some pirated tapes a few years later um but i remember that new segment where they're like it it wouldn't be against the rules to kill someone <laughs> 
you know, like you might get arrested after, but you would still get a win on your record if like you went like, you know, and that, you know, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but, you know, there was, you know, it it was a possibility at in the first one. You know, there's there's a lot of pretty serious injuries, you know, throughout the UFC's history. So I I felt almost like a, a kind of faces of death obligation to see what it was. It was like, wow, this is something is really breaking in the world here if this is like what's becoming possible. And, you know, almost like, you know, I wound up to taking this part out, but originally I'd sort of written about that same period when I was younger of hearing about the UFC on news. I compared it to kind of the same obligation I felt to like sit and when I was like 12 or something, when the first Gulf War happened, I just sat and watched the news for like 12 hours straight after school one day, you know, after we started attacking Iraq and like, you know, all those like all those grainy night video footages of bombs dropping and everything else. Like, you know, I didn't know what I was watching, but I just felt like an obligation, like this is terrible and serious and something, you know, that it's kind of boring also, but like I feel I'm here in the world, so I have to know what what's in this world that I'm in. So, like, I felt obliged to be accountable for it in some way. And I felt that same pull with the UFC. Like, this is horrible and terrible. But if it's possible, then I, <laughs> I should see it. I should know that what it is and, and try and understand it. I love reading a book like yours, The History of the UFC. Little things like the name Ultimate Fighting Championship, the logo of the man uh, with the yeah. arm stretched in the globe, even the ring essentially were last minute ideas. You don't realize what a mom and pop operation it was early on, right? Tiny, yeah. I mean, they went they went from Art Davy pitching it to Semaphore, getting on the phone with Campbell McLaren. Um, they went from the very first pitch and agreeing to take a meeting and talk things through to going on the air in about six months, you know? So like they, you know, you talk about barnstorming, they just barnstorm through everything um, to get that first show up. And, you know, a lot of that, you know, I, I kind of write in the book, Art Davey didn't even have like a shell corporation yet, an LLC to even like sign a contract. He was just a, a lone person. So after he got the green light from Semaphore and Campbell McLaren to like agree to, you know, co-produce that first UFC. He was like, Oh, I, I don't have a legal entity to sign the contract. <laughs> so he had to go get a lawyer and create an LLC. How, um, how about the, the ring idea too? Like there was like the electric ring, uh, a moat yeah. plexiglass, like they were just throwing out any wacky idea. Like who would have thought 30 years ago, they talked about plexi an electric ring. You get electrocuted. Plexiglass, which I actually like the plexiglass idea. Yeah. I mean, I, I think people have tried that too. They, like the the sweat smearing on it and really obscuring the view for the cameras, I think um, really kills the, the workability of that. But that, I mean, that would be beautiful too. You just see people smeared up <laughs> against the side. I mean, it'd be like modern art or something like that. And I mean, it would kind of be a weapon to you. slam someone's face into the, you know, it's a, it's a lot harder to do that with the cage. It's, it's too much bounce. Although they have um, 
there's a technique called cheese gratering where you can just <laughs> drag someone's back across the cage if like they have like a wrestler is pushing you up against the fence they can kind of like rake you to try and and um break your defense a little bit it's very well it'll, it'll cut you open it'll, it'll get you bleeding so there's there's a lot of i think they talked about barbed wire at one yeah. point too there's there's a lot and um you know, Horian's idea for the referee, he didn't want a referee in the cage either. He thought that would, you yes. know, kind of spoil the the purity. Horian Gracie, who, mm-hmm. who helped co-plan it with everyone. Um, he wanted, originally, he wanted the referee to sit on what he kind of described as like the equivalent of a lifeguard stand outside of the octagon and just look down without interfering at all. He wanted, Jesus. He wanted it to be as pure... A, a capturing of combat as you could get. So like the only people that could intervene were the fighters corners by throwing the towel in. Um, but if, um, if they didn't, it's just knock out or choke for the fighter <clears throat> themselves, like submit. You, uh, you gave the read of three different avenues, I guess you talked about the financial things, how, you know, the selling yeah. of the UFC. You also talked about certain fighters, which we're going to talk about. You talked about the history of the UFC. Going into the book, did you know you wanted to write it that way? Because it seems like, as a reader, holy shit, how did he intertwine all these things? Here's a sale. Here's a Nate Diaz fight. And oh, the history of it. Was it tough to write a book like that? And did you know you wanted to do a book like that? Uh, yeah, that was that was the plan from the outset. Um, it really sucked. It was super hard. Because, <laughs> you know, it's like... It's, you know, like six or seven different stories all happening on different timelines and sort of the dramatic points don't necessarily line up with the same, you know, you can't just sort of like go off from like the cliffhanger in one person's story and then jump to like the happy ending in another person's story. It's a real, um, that was a real kind of four dimensional chess that that's part of why it took so long to write where it's sort of, you know, I had all this information lined up and then it was sort of like, how do you fit all these pieces together, braid all these timelines together in a way that doesn't seem like, you know, just arbitrary or like, you know, clicking through a bunch of Wikipedia pages, you know, it seems like a real story where everyone's kind of invested in something common. Um, that, you know, it just really came out of like, being comfortable not knowing where I was heading. You know, I knew that I wanted to go, you know, from the super high level mm-hmm. business stuff to the super personal interior stuff and to capture um, some link about how those high level cultural and political and financial forces end up sort of rippling through all the way down into just that private inner monologue, like all of us have inside of ourselves and kind of shape some of the decisions people make and the investments people make with their own lives and and why they make the choices they do and what kind of drives them, what the incentives are for them emotionally and sort of, you know, it's, it's never money. It's always sort of the, you know, the fantasy. It's sort of like the, the epigram for the book. It's kind of cryptic, but it's sort of, you know, everyone I think in the book is on a journey to try and, hopefully change themselves you know that's that's the appeal i think ultimately of like risking yourself in combat inside you know a locked cage you think there's something that you're going to get out of that 
that will leave you a changed person, whether that's wealth or, you know, some kind of inner understanding by exposing yourself to adversity or it, you know, people want it to be a catalyst to, to take them to a better place so they can be a better person. Um, and, you know, I think that was sort of the encapsulating kind of concept is sort of like everyone was on their own kind of personal art to like, individual transformation and um you know that in a lot of ways that's impossible you just end up kind of becoming yourself again at the end and reckoning with you know the parts of that self that you know you wanted to escape and that end up becoming inescapable and that's kind of why dana white is such a perfect avatar so he he was very comfortable from very early on accepting himself and just throwing out any notion that he had to become someone who he wasn't in order to succeed. Um, you know, he was wearing the t-shirts and cussing out reporters and fighters and like, he's not a typical CEO. No, it, you know, you, the best part of the book I loved the most is when you had Dana White would go to Best Buy and put the UFC DVDs in front of the <laughs> other thing. Like this is straight up mom and pop. How was the UFC with you? Did they give you any access? Obviously, they were uh, aware you writing a book because it was, you know, the yeah, book was getting a lot of press. On it. Were they uh, available to you? Did they give you interviews? How were they? Uh, they they cooperated for a while. We were talking for about, I think, seven or eight months. Okay. Um, I did. They gave me a few interviews with Lawrence Epstein, who's. Um, one of the, he was an outside counsel for the UFC for a long time. And eventually he became one of their, he became full time. one of the, I think he's their, their chief operating officer. Now um, I spoke to Mark Ratner, who was, mm. who was the executive director of the Nevada athletic commission. And then they hired him full time to help expand the UFC and get um, athletic commission approval in all 50 States. He sort of spearheaded the push to, get approved in New York and build the sort of regulatory architecture for them to go internationally and do shows and kind of have a consistent rule set. Um, and then I was going to speak to Dana. We had a bunch of um, interviews set up and they just all kind of fell through. Um, I don't think for any nefarious reasons initially, anyway, they're very, you know, they're a busy company. He's a busy guy. He's always on the move. Um, and they gave me press passes. It's sort of the intro chapter describes going yeah. to the event in Newark, Robbie Lawler versus Colby Covington, where um, the baby Trumps were. Um, <laughs> and then after that, yeah, this wound up getting cut too. I wrote it as part of the um, an earlier version, but I went after that to the next pay-per-view, which was in Anaheim. And I think the plan was I was originally going to get um, – backstage access there and was going to be able to interview fighters you know the newark event they were just like come hang out you know see see you know a show from like the ground floor and then um at anaheim i was really gonna go and meet fighters and coaches and and get a little more um into the production talk to production people and the camera people and see how the thing was kind of assembled um and I showed up, I paid my own ticket out there, got to the arena, and I was just not on the list. Oh. <laughs> and then, you know, I was, I was texting my contact at the UFC, and he's like, I don't know, I'm not there, I can't help you, sorry. Oh, like, it sucks. And so they kind of 
ghosted me a little bit. And I, you know, I, I think this sort of like a lot of companies, they have their own platform now. They don't need other people to tell their stories as much. And I think, you know, whether they were just like, who cares or whether they were like, this may not be the most flattering book for us. We shouldn't give it any more fuel or whatever. Um, they just decided to not participate anymore. And the Dana interview went away. The Fertitta interviews went away. They promised and it promised that they were going to help me get connected to the Frutitas and talk to a bunch of other people in the production team. Um, maybe even Ari, I was, I was hoping. Oh, that would have been great. I was leveraging everything I could to try and get an Ari interview, but yeah, it all sort of evaporated. They have their own YouTube channel. They have their own Instagram. They, they find people. They find the people they need yes. to find through their own platforms. See, re, as a reader, I love the fact that you told it. Like, listen, we talked. We like we love wrestling. WrestleMania yeah. one, two, and then all of a sudden it was getting bigger. Three, the Pontiac Silverdome. Then four it was getting bigger and bigger. UFC wasn't like that. It wasn't like okay, from one to two ninety. It wasn't just um like a rocket ship. It was a lot of ups and downs, a lot of roller coaster. Were you aware that it was popular? Then it fell out, and there was just so many behind the scenes things because it was close to collapsing numerous times. Um. Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, it was the weirdest thing I think was in the mid nineties where they really were super popular back then too. They like, they were everywhere in a way that I think is maybe easy to forget when you look back on that history, but you know, they, they had an episode of friends about them. They were yeah. the cover <laughs> of mad magazine, you know, they had, you know, they tank Abbott was in a Denzel Washington movie, like, it wasn't like a good movie, but like the UFC was in, if you know, they wrote it into the big plot of this big summer action blockbuster. Um, you know, like you had big, like Sammy Hagar, David Hasselhoff would go to these shows. Like, um, you know, they, they had a real cultural footprint back then and they just kind of ran out of money. They were, you know, Semaphore was a much smaller company than the Fertitas and um, station casinos who wound up buying it in 2001. So, you know, it was, it was a big success, but they were still kind of just like, you know, operating on a shoestring in a lot of ways relative to how much cultural influence they had. And as the UFC hit its struggles, then the Japanese MMA scene like really took off and that became even bigger than what the UFC had done in mm -hmm. the U S they were playing in, arenas with like 40 and 50,000 people they were broadcast on one of the biggest channels in Japan they were like you know some of their events were seen by like 20 30% of the entire population of the country Oof. you know it was a, a totally different atmosphere um so i mean it felt like there was something happening it was like but you know, it was also not a consolidated industry yet either. You know, it was like there's things happening in different parts of the world and different places of the sport. And, you know, now the industry is basically consolidated around the UFC. You know, the UFC kind of used a lot of um, brutal tactics to kind of ensure that that yeah. would be what wound up happening. But, you know, now you think, you know, there's no strike force, there's no pride, mm -hmm. there's no IFL. You know, but you still have Bellator, you still have PFL, but like, you know, name a fighter in PFL, 
Exactly. Was Spike TV basically saved the UFC? Because you kind of wrote about that. Is that true, you think? Like Spike TV was like the savior for them? Um, I, yeah, maybe. I, you know, it was a reality TV saved them, I think. Um, it, it depends. You know, I, I think by that time, mixed martial arts was had a footprint already. Like okay. there were, Monty Cox was doing shows in Iowa and like all throughout the Midwest. Terry Treblecock was doing shows up and down California. WEC was out there. They had a lot of small regional shows that were established. Hook and Shoot was going strong in, in the Midwest too. Um, and Pride was continuing to just roll through Japan. Um, so the the way the ufc sometimes frames it about the ultimate fighter was it kind of just transform mixed martial arts but it was really more transformative for the company the ufc and i think um it didn't you know mixed martial arts would have been there no matter what it just mm -hmm. might have existed on a smaller scale for a while and it might have wound up coming today you know evolving into something that's a little bit closer to what boxing is where you have a bunch of different um different organizations with different okay. fighters and different stars and they're they're not completely aligned and housed under one kind of brand i think what what reality tv did was sort of put the footprint on the idea the stamp that there's one brand that matters and that's the ufc and here are all these contestants that have walked out of their own lives and gone into this competition, this live in a house that, where they hate everyone that they're living with. <laughs> and, you know, they're peeing on beds and they're like running till they vomit on treadmills, like just sacrificing everything, putting themselves in the most debauched sort of situations possible because they believe in the value of being a mixed martial artist as a profession, as a career, as a life calling. And that life calling, the highest version of that would be a contract for $8,000 with the UFC. <laughs> it's like, oh. I don't, it wasn't even 8,000 back then. I, I, I think an Ultimate Fighter contract was 2,000. And 2000. Oh my God. I get, I get a double, yeah. Um, it was, it was not a lot of money in any case. And, um, I, but that's the message that was broadcast to, you know, millions of homes through that show. Two million people would watch an episode of that show that first season. And as many as 10 million people wound up watching the finale with Stefan Bonner and Forrest Griffin. Um, and that that really, you know, there's something humans, you know, we're mimetic kind of animals in a lot of way. We see someone else doing something. We want to practice doing yeah. what they're doing, <laughs> even if it's just an emotional state. You know, it's the power of the Internet. You see a YouTuber being blown away by like this new kitchen knife. You're like, oh, I bet I would be blown away by a <laughs> kitchen knife, too. I want I wish I could touch that handle and feel <laughs> how it chop. You know, you have it just there's this curiosity to like feel what someone else is feeling. And so, you know, the power of reality television, it showed these people feeling this intense convic conviction and hope for the idea of a career in mixed martial arts. And that, I think, transferred a lot of that reverence and power to people that, that were watching in the audience. You that chose... Really, yeah. You, that, I'm sorry to cut you off, Mike. You chose four fighters to really focus on. 
Obviously, mm. Ronda Rousey and Connor are their ground balls why you chose them. Uh, why are the Diaz brothers and why Randy Couture? What made them stand out? Because you could have wrote around a ton of guys. And yeah. I love that you focused on four. And again, I'm going to fanboy out a little bit. I love that you're talking about the financial stuff. And just when you're like, okay, I'm done with the fine, boom, back to the history of it. Boom, yeah. to the Diaz brothers. Like, it was such a perfect mix of everything. But what made you choose those four fighters? Uh, it was tough. That was another really yeah, hard. I bet you had Liddell. Question. You had so many other ones. Yeah, and it was, I mean the Liddell and Tito Ortiz stuff. There was there was a lot. I think there's a lot of potential in terms of threading into Dana's narrative as a character too, because that was such a close relationship they had. Um, but the, I mean, the hardest part was really just keeping track of the whole timeline. So it's sort of like I need, I need fighters that were genuinely important for the time period that they were fighting during and that meant something significant to the ufc and that also don't overlap too much so i can sort of have them be the sole character for you know like couture beautifully kind of spans the transition from semaphore to Zufa, the early 2000s when the old owners sold to the new ones and kind of that struggling period. Um, so you get a little bit of the color of what it was like in the wild 90s period and kind of what happened, you know, in the early days of of the the takeover after the Fertitta acquisition. Um, and, you know, the Diaz brothers, you know, they were always going to be a part of it. I, I think they're, you know, as much as anyone, I think they're probably the most important fighters in UFC history. I think they're, oh. uh, you know, their approach, Nick's approach specifically, I think, you know, this would be true of Nate too, but I think he has the the single most powerful approach to martial arts as a, a kind of spectator sport, which is not about winning or perfecting, creating the perfect machine to sort of, you know, deliver the perfect performance. It, you know, it's, I kind of write in the book that his, his entire approach was kind of predicated on the idea of exposing himself to the greatest amount of risk to test himself. So like, what, who am I when I'm, jumping into the unknown face, like throwing myself into the fire. Like what can I do for myself when I don't know what the answer is when it's 2 AM and I'm alone in the back alley and there's four people, you know, what can I do for myself then? It's not like, all right, we have the same weight. We have the same yeah. reach. We did the same. I got like fighters to mimic you and sparred, you know, 500 rounds against people like replicate, you know, it's like, what if I've never seen you before? I don't know if you're a fighter or, you know, olympic whatever it's so badass yeah yeah and so it wasn't with him it wasn't about winning or losing it was about the courage to just trust yourself to not break and the commitment to martial arts as a way of of you know facing those the unknown you know teddy atlas describes this stuff really beautifully he talks about fights like going into a dark room and you don't know how big it is or how long it goes how deep it goes but like that's what fights are you're just walking deeper and deeper into the darkness and you don't know what's in there and you don't know how you're going to re react the deeper in you go and you don't know if you'll be able to get out again it's the same person that went in but like you know, the Diaz brothers both, I think they fight with a kind of courage to go like as deep into the darkness as they have to. And that's what oh. makes their their fights so um, powerful to watch. 
And that's what makes them, I think, so so pivotal to the time um, they fought in. It was it was a time when not a lot of people in the U.S. were really following the sport. But even before the UFC became super successful, you know, they were drawing eyes to it regardless of the reality show. Nick Diaz, you know, his knockout of Robbie Lawler, his attitude in, in press conferences and media interviews, you know, there's a magnetism to him. He was a kind of prototypical mixed martial arts star before, you know, the McGregor's and the Rousey's before ESPN was there to care about it, you know, when it was just sure dog and, and, um, you know, a bunch of like local bloggers, you know, but he had a power as, as a martial artist and as an athlete, I think that, that really helped create the sort of foundations of, of what mixed martial arts would be as a culture, as a mass sort of market culture. Early on, Mike, you, uh, the UFC, the, you can punch in the groin, there were teeth flying out, pulling of the hair, no rules. Like you said, you can die in the <laughs> ring. And now it's more technical. Obviously, there's doctors. Obviously, it's safer, thank God. Do you think the no-holds-barred craziness with the teeth flying out in the beginning was good for the UFC early on because it made everyone talk about it? And it was less, like, technical? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, in a lot of ways, I don't think they've... they've. Um, I don't think the sport has, has gotten better as it's evolved. It, you know, I think in a lot of ways, the best UFCs were still the first handful. Um, they were certainly the most dangerous, the most yeah. reckless, <laughs> um, the most irresponsible in a lot of ways. You know, it's sort of like, um, you know, leaving the kids home alone with, you know, the gas running on the stove <laughs> and like firecrackers stored up in the basement. Um, but, you know, I, I, I UFC too, I think that was the, that's the longest um, tournament they did. That was, they expanded the the one night tournament from eight people to 16. Wow. And so the winner, this hoist won that one too, but the winner would have to fight four times in one night, not three times, which was it's the original. It's madness. It really is. It's, you know, I, I compare it a lot. It's like kind of climbing Mount Everest. You know, it wasn't about a one-on-one -on -one fight. It was, you know, it was about doing something superhuman almost like could you still perform after you had gone through that adrenaline cycle three times before and you don't know who you're fighting it's a lottery to you know depict names out of a a tumbling cage with everyone's names written on balls like a lottery system like you know <laughs> you don't know where you're going to end up you don't know if you're going to have to fight the 600 pound sumo or the 200 pound karate guy from Idaho. Like you have no idea what you're getting into and, you know, can you survive it? And I think that's, that's what drew a lot of those early contestants to it is the unknown. It wasn't about perfecting the techniques and the strategies and the tactics. It was about negotiating a survival strategy for an extreme environment and circumstances it's almost kind of closer to like you know if you watch like the show naked and afraid you yeah. know it's, it's really like you know it's That's a great it's, comparison you know you're trying to mitigate your losses to like slow the rate of loss but everyone was on the same trajectory of just emptying themselves out over the course of the night and who could hold on to enough of themselves before the lights shut off to kind of like just edge over the finish line 
And I think that, you know, that was a very different kind of question than we see in a lot of UFC fights today where it's sort of, you know, it's become more tactical. It's, you know, one versus one and that's it. Um, you know, it's sort of technically about rankings and leveling up to get a title shot and all that stuff. But I think, I don't, I don't know that it's a better sport today than when it was back then. I had, I yeah. I don't know if it's any safer either. It's just sort of the risk, you know, because in the old days they would do four events a year, you know, five events a year. And, and now they're just they pumping do. them out. Yeah. And so like, you know, a lot of the damage that happens now happens off camera and a lot of the suffering that happens now happens off camera too, you know, sparring and chronic brain trauma. And, you know, I, you know, there's even more people involved now and people, you know, you look at the first UFCs, you wouldn't ever think whoever's doing that would do that for 20 years, like Jim Miller. It would be a 22 decade career where you just do that. And now, but it, it's become a viable career path. And so you have people just getting hit in the head for years on years on years. And you can see the degradation in speech patterns and, and thought clarity and, you know, just even basic like movement walking, you know, it, it's really it can be difficult to watch. And I think a lot of it has come out of, um, you know, the way the company has grown, the business has developed and, um, you know, some of the, some of the narrative they tell about it turning into a, a more formal sport. You know, I think a lot of those transitions to making it a formal sport have made it more damaging in the long run than, you know, those really irresponsible early shows. You invested so much of your time, three to four years into this book. You went all the way, you did, you, know, you did a deep dive. Do you still love the UFC? Do you still love MMA? Like, do you still want to watch it? Or do you see from a different aspect now? Like, ah. Eh. Um, yeah, no, I do. I'm still, I'm still a deep, dark goon at heart. <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I used to. I used to like get up at 4 a.m. on Saturday, like when they do cards from Singapore or something. Yeah. I'd be, like I'd set the alarm to go see the, you know, the fight pass prelims for a Singapore, you know, fight night card, like on a Saturday morning. Um, And I think, you know, where I'm at now, I don't, I don't do that kind of stuff anymore. I think, you know, it's, it's a different time with, they're really emphasizing bringing in people from Dana White's contender series. Mm -hmm. um, and there's kind of a new facelessness to the sport that I don't think was there seven or eight years ago where they're really investing in personalities and um, characters. I, you know, I think they've embraced the kind of lottery, the financial lottery structure, like changing your life with a $50,000 bonus. I think that's a much bigger part of how they present you know, what's meaningful about the fights now rather than, you know, here's this weird guy who wears a cowboy hat to the <laughs> ring every time, but he lived in Thailand for five years as a kickboxer and he has his shins tattooed, but he talks with a cowboy accent. <laughs> like, you know, um, so I've fallen out a little bit, you know, I'm still, I'm still watching every weekend, you know, watching YouTube interviews, like, dissecting 30 second sound bites. Like one thing that's interesting, I think like, I think like a lot of fans, like I, uh, right now I can't really afford to watch the pay-per-views that much. So a lot of times 
I watch big fights on Twitter first, which is a kind of weird thing. It's it it's a throwback, I think, a little bit to kind of um for in 2001 i lived for a couple of months in the czech republic okay um right after i finished school and did some work uh in the movies i kind of i decided to just kind of blow everything off and go travel for a bit but at that time i was a i was a huge nfl fan so you know there was nowhere to watch nfl in in the czech republic in 2001 that i knew of so i would just go to internet bars and refresh espn.com <laughs> And they didn't have live video feeds, but at that time they would have like a little graphic. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, the of football course. field, and they'd have a little football icon, and each play they'd show it's second and eight balls on the 40 yard line, and then they'd refresh it every 30 seconds after each play. And I would 32, just 32, like what happened? <laughs> yeah, I just watch entire NFL games like that. And that's kind of the way I watch pay per views now. Um, for like really big ones I want to go see live, I'll go like to a bar or Dave mm-hmm. and Busters or something like that. Um, but yeah, I do a lot. I have fight pass. I'll watch a lot of the stuff two weeks after when it hits fight pass. Um, but I do a lot like the Diaz, Jake Paul fight. I watched that on Twitter. Yeah. Just went into the Twitter thing and watched all the clips together, read the, you know, and it was almost like this mixed media kind of pastiche of like some written descriptions of round two. There's a video clip of round three. There's what someone's tweeting. It's almost like being a private investigator or something. You're just trying to stitch together what is actually happening. Is he losing? Is he winning? Is this good? Is this bad? Uh, And that has its own drama too. I think that that's part of what really works about the sport in this environment too. There's a lot of people everywhere all over the world that can kind of do that stuff through you know whatever resources they have available it's your phone is it youtube is it twitter is it instagram you know is it blogs that cover this stuff it all kind of threads together you nailed it when you said they're 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 self-sustainable you said if there was um if every gym disappeared the ufc would be fine how impressive was their facilities um it's not that impressive. <laughs> wow. Okay. Because I'll be honest, when you describe it that way, I'm like, holy shit, this is like desert island. You can go to the UFC facilities and never leave. I mean, it, it it's it it's impressive, but it's also like you know, it's um did you ever see that um I think it was like adult swim kind of spoof, or maybe it was an onion video series called Sex House. No, no, no. It was like a send-up of a reality show where it was just all these like young 20-something like hot people that had to live together in a house. And but like after the first episode, they just got locked in the house. They couldn't leave and the blinds got drawn and that like they didn't get any more food and it kind of slowly turned into a, a survivor kind of thing. And it's like that to me, that's what what's impressive about the performance institute it's like it's designed to be impressive if you go there for a day but if you go there for like a month you start to see the mold in the corners or the weird like little creaky oh this was you know it's like everything with technology too oh this must have been really cool five years ago like if you get a look at a car from five years ago with the gps screen and whatever this is sick yeah, that would have been sick in 2017, but now it's like, you know, what is that? A kid's like iPad <laughs> toy or something? Like, why? 
you know, it's like, it's mm. just every 18 months or so, this stuff just gets better and better. And, you know, you have hundreds of sweaty, heavy people just like using the sauna or the weight machine, just, you know, things break, they wear down, you know, there's nothing more corrosive to, to stuff than like sweaty ah. human, like liquid, like, so, you know, it's impressive, but hard to keep up. You know, if if they didn't stay on top of that in terms of cleaning, they're just, you know, they're about a week away from that thing turning into a festering yeah, swamp, that's great. I think. You uh, you said many times you didn't know how to like to finish the book. Like uh, COVID happened and they had Fight yeah. Island, which, you know, that blew UFC up. And then the McGregor um, Mayweather fight, all this stuff. Yeah. I'm really glad you touched on life after the UFC, the issues the fighters face uh, mentally, uh, physically, emotionally, mm -hmm. all that stuff. Um, right when they leave the ring, will there ever be a system you think that will take care of them? Kind of like the NFL is trying to do more of like, you think it's ever going to happen or no? Uh, no, I don't think wow, so. Wow. That, that's scary and sad, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it just, that's the way the whole world mm -hmm. is going. I think it like, I mean, the UFC has benefited from fragmentation of culture and politics. And, you know, yeah. the gaps between people are widening and the leverage athletes have over their employers is dwindling. Um, and I, you know, I think we're decades away from athletes really being able to get any kind of leverage yeah. over the UFC. I mean, Fighters, you know, people have made a really good attempt. The antitrust suit, there's two antitrust suits against the UFC that are ongoing. And those have had real material consequences for the UFC. That's part of how Francis Ngannou was able to get out of his contract. Um, I didn't get, he fought out his contract, but the old UFC contracts mm -hmm. used to have a clause that if you're champion, the UFC has matching rights to any offer okay. you get. And they have some exclusive windows and they can sort of extend your contract almost in perpetuity. Um, so in the old model, he would have effectively been trapped in a contract with the UFC, even if he had finished out, you know, the number of fights he was contracted to fight. Um, but they changed that as a result of um, the antitrust suit, which has not been, there's no ruling yet. They're not even at trial yet. It's just been almost 10 years now of just um, preliminary arguments, um, expert reports, depositions, um, waiting for some other cases that are related that have similar sort of legal issues at work to kind of play through the courts so there's a clear precedent about how to handle some of the more technical legal questions about um the ufc's case mm -hmm. in particular but even that stuff you know it it's a long way away from um there being a pension fund for fighters Oof. or even they don't even have health care insurance you know that's heavy that's like, heavy man they get health care for the event. If you get an injury at the event, you go see the doctor and you're like, I broke my orbital. They'll pay for all the, you know, costs and treatment that relate to that. But, you know, if you break your orbital and sparring four weeks out from your fight, you're kind of on your own. That's barbaric. And, yeah. Listen, I've had you on for an hour and 10 minutes, ready to finish up with four quick kick questions. Sure. One sporting event in history. You wish you could have witnessed live? That is a good question. 
I think the, the honest answer is I don't care. Really? <laughs> okay. I've been, yeah, I've been I've been to enough sporting, maybe a bare knuckle boxing fight in like the 1700s. Or, you know, I, I very briefly mentioned gouging, which was a, a very popular sport in the American colonies in the 1700s, which was, you know, literally involved gouging people's eyes out or okay. fish hooking their nostrils, ripping their nostrils or their mouths. Um, and that would have been interesting to watch, um, just because that's such a, it's a hard to sort of imagine time period setting, you know, even with all the like, you know, colonial recreation towns and, you know, fantasy, like weird new England kind of recreations of colonial life. Like, I think the reality of what colonial life was about. Um, is still kind of hard to imagine. So either that or like, you know, in London, like, you know, seeing James Fig fight or Jack Slack fight, you know, that that would have been interesting or, you know. Um, Mike, I got to be honest, I've had 400 guests on. That might have been the greatest answer ever, gouging in the 1700s. That's a great answer. I'm not, <laughs> no, I'm not. It's always Jackie Robinson's first game, The Miracle on Ice, Ali Frazier, gouging in the 1700s. How about this? You and I are at a bar here in Brooklyn. Sure. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? So I'm asking you to name drop here. You want to impress everyone at the bar. Be mm. like, oh, look who I can text. They're going to text me back. You have anyone cool on your phone? Um, no, not really. I mean, <laughs> how about this one? How about is yeah? I used to work in movies, so like I kind of stopped caring about celebrity back then. Where okay, you know, I was, um, like I'm not friends with a bunch of celebrity. I don't mean to sort of imply that. No, like, of, course, of course. You know, I worked at a management. I would like bring packages to Leonardo DiCaprio's house and like Samuel Jackson's house and like, you know, got to talk to Heather Graham. But like, you know, these, these people don't know who I am, but like yeah. I knew who they were. I got to see where they lived, how they lived, like, and like have a teeny tiny little piece of their life. And that just kind of punctured the entire celebrity. Oh, it kills the whole thing. Yeah. It's horrible. for me. Um, so, it, you know, I, like I've, I'm kind of more interested in in characters, I think. And maybe Campbell McLaren. Campbell is a very um he's a executive from Semaphore. He's a promoter now with Combate Global. He's a very responsive person on text. He's uh, he's a very chatty person. I think he would have a lot of a lot of cool things to say. So I think maybe that here's the guy that invented the UFC. Yeah. Helped invent the UFC. I'm gonna text him right now to tell him. Just gonna say this person sucks. Or... <laughs> and how about this? How about I don't know if you have any. How about the coolest piece of memorabilia that you own? House is burning down. Let me grab one piece of memorabilia, one cool thing that you own. Um, I don't have anything cool. I the one thing I would probably take outside of you know living creatures is um I still have a wristwatch that um. There's nothing special about it. It was a it was a Seiko from Target that my mom bought for my grandpa oh. in the 80s at some point. She was my my um parents are both Danish. 
and um, my grandparents lived in Denmark while we were growing up. And my mom would, um, she would always stock up on like these cheap, fake nice things that you can get in America, you know, like yeah. the Marsh Marshall's nice stuff, TJ Maxx nice stuff, not the actual nice stuff, but she would just load up and bring it back to Denmark in the 80s and 90s to kind of, you know, in theory kind of spoil yeah. her parents. And and she gave this watch to my grandpa and when he died, and we went over to Denmark to help move him remove his stuff out of their the tiny little house they lived in and um my grandma was his wife had um she started developing dementia and we had to move her into a home so we had to clear out the whole thing and um my mom asked if i wanted anything of his and i didn't really want that much but i wanted the watch and i used to wear it um Aww. And it doesn't work anymore either because it's a cheap piece of crap. Like the battery died, the gears are all messed up. But I kind of like the idea of just having a watch that doesn't run, just a pure vanity item that has nothing but sentimental value. That's a solid like a functionless answer. Functionless. Yeah, that's thing. a solid answer, bro. Yeah, so I think that's honestly that's the one thing I would probably take. Mike, this was a blast, bro. Your book was awesome. Give the plug. Everybody can follow you on Twitter and buy the book because I'm telling you, UFC fan, not a hardcore fanatic, one of the best sports books I've read in so long. It gave me such a backstory that I fell down a uh, rabbit hole. You would talk about Nate Diaz fight. I'd mm. read the book, pull it up on YouTube and watch it with McGregor, with Ronda, Couture. Bro, you, you crushed it. The book was awesome, and I can't see what you're doing next, man. So just give the plug where everyone can buy the book and everything else, man. Um, you can buy the book everywhere. It's on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes and Noble. Um, it's on sale in the UK and Europe. Um, I actually don't know what retailers have it over there. So Amazon UK has it. There's all, you know, Waterstones, I think is the big bookseller there. Um, I have a Twitter. I don't really post anymore all that much. You don't, you're not um, on Twitter that much, bro. Yeah. I don't even, do you know my handle? It's I Mike don't Thompson it. something. Yeah. But like it's, there's underscore. It's at Mike Thompson. You'll find it's you know just Google Cage Kings Mike Thompson. Like it. Um, Here we go. It's if at, you want to stay in touch, email. I'm I'm on my email every day. I I much prefer the sort of you know it's the return to the roots of the internet. It was actual person to person communication instead of like I'm gonna publish a message to you that everyone can see. And then tag you in it. It's sort of for you, but it's also like this weird social performance. So everyone for all can of see them friends. writing to you. So like, yeah, I mean, it's a weird, like, it's almost like homoerotic. Like when you're in junior high and your friends like kind of egg you to go like ask the pretty girl on the other and side everyone's of the playground. You go do it. And, and you go up, and you're like, hey, what's your favorite color? Like, you know, there's that there's that element I think to to social media communication, even with the sort of tagging and whatever else. But um, I always respond to emails. Here's your Twitter handle. It's at Mike underscore Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-E-N. Not very active on it, but he is on Twitter. Email him though. I'll get active again. Just, just you wait. <laughs> Mike, so, this was a blast, bro. Thank you so much for doing this, brother. Appreciate Continue it. success, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a good one. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye.